On the show Saturday Night Live, there is a recurring sketch where one of the cast members, Beck Bennett, plays the CEO of an incredibly successful company, but there's something a little bit strange about him. And so we're actually going to watch a quick clip from one of those sketches right now. So, believe it or not, that sketch came to mind when I was reading this week's chapter in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, this is the, the book we've been working through over the last several weeks. Um, today we're looking at chapter 7 of the book, which is titled, Grow into an Emotionally Healthy Adult. Grow into an Emotionally Healthy Adult. And one of the things that, that um, Pete Scazzaro says in the chapter, he says that it's easy to grow physically into a chronological adult, it's quite another to grow into an emotional adult. Many people may be chronologically 45 years old, but remain an emotional infant, child, or adolescent. In that SNL sketch that we just watched, Beck Bennett's character, um, he is intellectually an adult, but physically he is a baby, right? He, he, he has the body of a baby, this kind of hilarious combination. In this week's chapter, it's sort of the reverse, that we can actually be physically an adult, but emotionally a baby, emotionally more like a child or an adolescent. Um, and the heart of what, what Pete Scazzaro talks about in, in this chapter of what it means to grow into an emotionally healthy adult has to do with how we relate to other people. How we interact with, with people in our lives, how to love them well. Uh, most of this series, the focus that we've had over this series, has been more um, focusing on our internal lives, kind of thinking about how we're doing internally and also about our relationship with God. But this chapter 
Pizcazera moves into thinking about our relationship with other people and that actually emotional health is not just about a, co a connection with God, but that it should actually flow out and impact how we relate to other people too. And we can relate to people in a very, in an emotionally healthy way, or we can also relate to other people in an emotionally unhealthy way. So that's going to be our focus today. And uh, the passage that we're going to look at today to help us um, enter into this is the, fair, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which many of us are probably familiar with. Uh, it's found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And so uh, we'll, we'll read that. The verses will be on the screen or you can follow along in your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, look into this, uh, this passage, this parable that, that Jesus uh, spoke to this expert in religious law, we pray that you would um, open it up to us, Lord, to help us understand more of what it means to be uh, an emotionally healthy um, adult, Lord, what it means to, to love people in our lives well um, and to, to put behind us some of the emotionally unhealthy ways that we sometimes relate to others. So use this, Lord, to, to speak to us and to shape us more and more into your image, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. As we think about this, this idea of growing into an emotionally healthy adult, uh, particularly in our relationship with others, I want to start by looking at the heart of emotional immaturity. What is the heart of emotional immaturity in a relationship with other people? And, and the way that I'm putting it is that that heart is self-centeredness. That the heart of emotional immaturity is self-centeredness. I have a five-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter that most of you know. And they are very good kids. I love them tremendously, but they are emotionally immature, as is to be expected 
of a five-year-old and a three-year-old, right? Um, sometime in, in the past couple months, both of our kids decided that their favorite plastic cup is this one particular magenta-colored one. Um, Sophia had been using that cup kind of primarily for, you know, at, at a lot of the meals. But then Lucas decided that he really liked that cup too. And so at just about every meal, we have a negotiation of who gets the magenta cup, cup who gets to have it this, this time. Um, and the same thing happens at bedtime for who gets to turn off the light in the room. They both want to turn off the light. And so we have to take turns. You know, one night Lucas turns it off, the next night Sophia does. The same thing happens when we're leaving our house, that, that they, they need to take turns. On. One of them wants to op- open up the, the main blue door, and then the other one will wa- open up the white screen door. And they try to figure out who opened the blue door yesterday. And if one of them believes that it's their turn, and we're giving the other one permission to do that thing, it is rough. The tears start to flow. Cries of injustice fill the air. Children have a hard time seeing beyond themselves. Right? They have a hard time seeing beyond their own wants and their desires. But that's not only true for children, is it? In this week's chapter, Pete Scazzaro writes this. He says, I can't help but experience life with me at the center of my universe. With my eyes, I look out on the world. With my ears, I hear what is going on. I can only feel, want, and experience what I am feeling, wanting, and experiencing. I naturally want the people around me to give up themselves and become what I want them to be. I prefer those close to me to think, feel, and act toward the world in the same way that I do. I prefer the illusion of sameness, when really we are very different from each other. I want other people's worlds to be like mine. For this reason, M. Scott Peck argues that we are all born narcissists and that learning to grow out of our narcissism is at the heart of the spiritual journey. We are born whether we like it or not, right? We, we see the world through our lenses, through our perspective. We see it the way that we see it. We can't, it's hard to get outside of that. And, and, and we're born, again, with this, this sinful nature, this sinful nature that just wants what we want, and we want everybody else to, to cater to our desires. We want everybody else to see the world that we see it. But people are not just like us, right? People are actually very different. And I think that this is something like this is what was happening for the characters in the parable that Jesus told in our text, the characters of the, of the priest and the Levite. As he told the story about, about, about this man that was broken on the side of the road, and, 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 he's, and he's half dead, and he's stripped of his clothes, and along comes who? A priest. And you'd think that a Jewish priest, knowing God's law, I mean, this is what he does when he studies God's law, he knows it. And he knows, obviously, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You would think that when he sees this man on the road, he would stop. And he would go and see how he's doing and figure out what he could do. But, but verse 31 says, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Then another religious leader comes along, a Levite. And, 
okay, maybe this guy didn't do it, but, but surely this, this, this second religious leader will do something. But verse 32 says, So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. But it's pretty clear that they were not primarily thinking about the man lying on the road. They were thinking about themselves, right? They were, they were focused on, on their own journey, their own life. And, and so maybe they were worried that this was a trap. Right? Maybe they worried that, that if they went and helped this guy, that maybe there were bandits hiding out and that, that they, would, they would come and, and beat them up as well. But, but what's their thinking? Their thinking is about themselves, their own safety. Maybe they were worried about becoming ritually unclean, that if they touched this man in, in, in this bloody mess, that, that somehow it would affect them. Maybe they were going up to Jerusalem. Again, but they're thinking about themselves, the effect on, on them. Maybe they were just in a rush. They didn't feel like they had time to deal with the messiness of caring for this man. Again, they're, they're focused on themselves. They're in a rush. Maybe they just didn't know what to do. They just felt overwhelmed, right? What are, what are we supposed to do with this, this man? For whatever reason, they pass by on the other side. What really was happening here is that the priest and the Levite didn't see this man as a neighbor to love. They didn't see him as a fellow human being created in the image of God who was in desperate need. They saw him as a problem, a problem to avoid. They saw him as a situation that they didn't really want to get involved with. They didn't really see him as a, as, as a, a person that was just as the same as them, but they saw him as, as sort of a, an abstraction, maybe, that they were, they were passing by. They were too wrapped up in themselves. In this week's chapter, Pete Gazzara references a book written by the Jewish theologian Martin Buber called I and Thou. And for the younger people here, thou just is an older way of saying you. If you're, yeah, uh, most of us probably know that, but I and thou, right? Um, and Buber, he, he draws a distinction in the book between an I-thou relationship and an I-it relationship. In an I-thou relationship, Scazzaro describes it this way. He says, I recognize that I am made in the image of God, and so is every other person on the face of the earth. This makes them a thou to me. It makes them a human being, a, a you, a thou. Because of that reality, every person deserves respect. That is, I treat them with dignity and worth. I do not dehumanize or objectify them. I affirm them as having a unique and separate existence apart from me. Now, on the flip side, Cazero uh, continues, says, Buber argued that in most of our human relationships, we lose sight of others as separate from us. We treat people as objects, as an it in that I-it relationship, to use Buber's word. He says, in the I-it relationship, I treat you as a means to an end, as if we might use a toothbrush or a car. The result of I-it relationships is that I get frustrated when people don't fit into my 
plans. We can actually treat people as if they are an object. They're, I only think of them in relation to how they relate to me. And whether they fit into my schedule, whether they fit into my plans, whether they fit into my desires. And if they don't, then I might dismiss them. They're just an it to me. An example of this, this I-it mentality can be seen in, um, I think, some of the culture that led to the recent college admissions scandal. If you were following the news, you know, in the last couple of weeks, there was this scandal about college admissions, right? People bribing um, in, and, and falsifying things to get their kids into certain um, colleges. And uh, the writer Peggy Noonan wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal, kind of off of what she saw is actually not just the, the scandal itself, but sort of the culture that led to a scandal like this. Um, and her title, the title of her article was, Kids Don't Become Success Robots. Kids Don't Become Success Robots. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the article. She says this, In the past decade or so, I've observed a particular parenting style growing prevalent among the upper middle class and wealthy. It is intense. They love their kids and want the best for them. They want to be responsible, but there's a degree to which one wonders if they don't also see them, their kids, as narcissistic extensions of themselves. They aim their children at the best colleges, which are to them basically brands. The colleges, too, market themselves that way. Get in there and you're branded, too. I believe a lot of parents do all this not only so their children will do well, but so they will look good. They are status monkeys creating success robots. Now, most parents are not going to go so extreme to bribe and cheat in order to get their kids into a particular school, but a lot of parents have the same underlying motivations that led some of those other parents to do that, to bribe and cheat, to go to such great lengths to get their kids into a school because there's this pressure, there's this feeling of, I need to have my kids succeed for myself, for my sense of worth, for my sense of brand. Noonan goes on to, to talk about her experience of working at an Ivy League school for a few months. And when she was working there, she was expecting a lot of the students who she worked with to be interested in, in her views on politics and history and literature. That's kind of what, what her area of expertise was. So she was hoping that they would ask her questions, she'd be able to talk about that. But instead, what she found is that all the students who came to her, they weren't interested in talking about the subjects of learning. All they wanted to know was they wanted to get tips on how to be better at networking how to network with people, to get to, to know the right people. And so they weren't actually interested in learning, they were just interested in making connections that would help them succeed. Many of these students saw their professors and even their fellow students as basically objects that were useful for their goals of success. You know, if I... If I, can, if I can make a connection through this person that will get me to a successful career, then I want to get to know them because they will help me with this goal. But how are they seeing that person? Not as a thou, but as an it, 
as a means to an end. How did these kids learn that mentality? How did they pick that up? From their parents. Sadly, a lot of those parents were seeing them as a means to an end. And so they passed that same mentality on to their kids and thinking that our goal is to get success and people are the ones that I can use in order to get success. The priest and the Levite, they saw that man lying on the road as an it. He didn't fit into their plans for their journey that day. And so they treated him as an it rather than a thou, and they passed him by. And we can easily do the same thing. It might not be as extreme as, as some of these examples, but we can, even just in our everyday lives, sometimes treat our family members or our coworkers, or our next-door neighbors, or our friends as objects that we see primarily in relation to us, to our wants, our plans, rather than as human beings created in God's image, who have their own wants, their own plans. And those wants and plans may not be the same as ours, but they're just as important and just as valuable as ours. So the heart of emotional immaturity is this self-centeredness that we have, this this thing that is just deeply rooted within us of beginning to, to see people as its, as objects, as means to an end rather than as people different, unique, and just as valuable as us. So let's look now at the heart of emotional maturity. What is the heart of emotional maturity? It's seeing ourselves in the proper perspective. Seeing ourselves in the proper perspective. Throughout human history, people assumed that the earth was the center of the universe. Right? For, for centuries, that was the assumption that, that most of human history had, right? It was that we are the center of the universe. And it makes sense, right? When you look out, from our perspective, it sure looks that way, that you know, the sun is revolving around us, and, and it looks, you know, we think of ourselves as we're the center. But then in 1543, Nicholas Copernicus published his heliocentric model, which placed the sun at the center of our solar system. And he said that the Earth was just one planet among several others that revolved around the sun. And this model revolutionized humanity's understanding of our place in the universe. I mean, suddenly, we all of a sudden had to face the fact that we actually weren't the center of the universe. That the earth, it wasn't that everything revolved around the earth. No, actually, we were one planet that were revolving around the sun. Emotional immaturity sees everything in relation to us. It sees that we are the center and everybody else revolves around me. Emotional maturity, the revolution of emotional maturity helps us to see that no, we are not the center of the universe, but that actually we are just one person among billions of people on this earth and each of those people are just as valuable as I am as you are, as we are. This was the perspective of the Good Samaritan when he saw that man lying on the road. 
Verses 33 and 34 say, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. The Samaritan saw this man on the road as a thou, not an it. He saw him as a person who was just as valuable as he was. And the text says that he took pity on him. Now the Greek word behind that that translation of taking pity actually is a very powerful word. It's a word that that might better be translated to have gut-wrenching compassion. To have a compassion that comes deep from the guts. And the Samaritan, as he saw this man on the road, he didn't see him as a problem to avoid. He didn't see him as a distraction, as as, as something that was interrupting his plans. He saw him as a fellow human being who was in deep need. And he had this deep compassion well up within him and said, "I, I care about this man. And so he comes near to him. And he helps him in his need. Now, how do we develop that kind of perspective? I mean, how, how do we begin to see people for who they are rather than just how they relate to us? How do we move from an I-it mentality to an I-thou perspective? How do we move from emotional immaturity to emotional maturity? Well, that revolution that Copernicus brought about hinged on figuring out the true center of the solar system. It wasn't just that the earth wasn't the center, but what helped put everything in perspective was figuring out what was the center. It was the sun. And once you knew that this is where, this is the center, the sun is the center, and then all of a sudden all the other movements of the planets fit into place. Okay, we all revolve around the sun. Without the sun, there would be no life on earth. And so in order to develop a proper perspective about other people, we first need to understand, where's the center? Where's the center in our world? Or who is the center? And of course, the true center in our world is God himself. God is the sun. And we all relate to him. We were created in the image of God and just as every other human being was. We all get our identity, we all get our value, our purpose from him. He's the center. The sun is the center that that gives the movement to the planets. God is the center that gives us our identity, that gives us our movement. And so we are valuable only because of our relation to God. Without him, we wouldn't even exist. Right? So our value is only wrapped up in him. And once we get the center right, then we can begin to see, in a proper perspective, everyone else. We begin to see ourselves and other people that we're all created in God's image, that we all revolve around this one center. And we re- recognize that our value, our identity comes only from God. Then, then guess what happens? Parents don't need to seek status from the success of their children because their value is from God. And children don't need to 
treat other kids or professors as, as objects to get success themselves because their value also comes from God. And when we encounter people in need, they won't feel like annoying interruptions to our plans, but we see them as fellow planets circling the sun. We see them as fellow human beings created in God's image. We see them as neighbors, neighbors to love. This week's chapter has a lot of really practical tools for how to begin to do this, how to begin to relate to other people in an emotionally mature way. Um, Scazzaro talks about how to deal with conflict. You know, we can often, in, in conflicts, we get really emotionally immature because in conflicts, what do we want? My way, right? And so in a conflict, I'm trying to force you to see things my way. But when we have a different perspective, all of a sudden we realize this person, they have their own perspective, I have my own, we're both created in God's image, maybe they see something that I don't see. And so suddenly, the way we deal with a conflict is very different when I see them as a thou rather than as an it. That's just one example. He goes on to talk about how, how to speak and listen to one another in, in this way, where we see the other person as a thou, where, where I'm not just listening so that I can talk about myself, but I'm actually listening to them and wanting to understand them. Or the importance of not making assumptions about other people. Or how to clarify expectations. We, we put expectations in other people and, and we don't clarify what those expectations are. And there's all kinds of things packed into this chapter that I could not possibly cover in one sermon. Um, in fact, there's a whole companion course to this one that's called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. So there's emotionally healthy spirituality. There's a whole course that's on emotionally healthy relationships, how to apply these principles into our relationships. And it goes through a lot of these skills in more depth. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll think about even going through that at some point in, in some way. But I want to close today by inviting us to see something in closing about this parable. Who are we meant to identify with in this parable? We might identify with that priest and that Levite in certain ways, right? ways that we sometimes pass people by. And we might think, you know, that, that maybe the whole point of this parable is, is to see ourselves as the Good Samaritan, that we're meant to be like the Good Samaritan and to, to come alongside of people and, and to care for them. And, and that's true. But the first person that we need to recognize and see ourselves in is the man lying on the road. Because, in fact, that's actually the, the, the perspective that Jesus asks this expert in the law to take at the end of the passage. What's the question that Jesus asks him at the end? He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? What Jesus is doing there is he's saying, put yourself in the place of the man lying on the road. And as you're lying there, beaten up and dead, almost you know, half dead, who was it that was a neighbor to you? And of course, the expert replies, the one who had mercy on him. In other words, the Samaritan. The only way that we are going to look at others around us as neighbors, to love, as thou's, not its, 
is when we realize that there is one who loved us as his neighbor, who saw us as a thou instead of an it. Who is that one? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Good Samaritan who saw us lying on the road, broken, beaten in our sin. And when Jesus saw us lying there, he didn't pass us by like the Levite, like the priest. He wasn't too busy for us. He didn't say, I'm too holy to get involved in your messiness. No. He, like the Samaritan, had a gut-wrenching compassion for us. He saw us in our brokenness and said, I, I love these messed up sinful people and I need to do something for them. And so God himself crossed all the way from heaven to earth into our messiness and he came down to us and he bandaged our wounds and he restored us. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus is the one who had mercy on us. And because Jesus did that for us, how can we treat our fellow brothers and sisters lying on the road as obstacles to our plans or objects for our purposes? No, we were there too. We're all people lying on the road needing Jesus to come near to us. Is it possible that God may want to use us to be his vehicle of bringing that mercy and compassion to that fellow brother or sister who is also lying on the road just as Jesus came near to us. We're all planets owing our existence to the sun in the center. We're all completely dependent upon him. And so as we receive the mercy and love of Jesus, we pass that same mercy and love to those around us. And as Jesus said to that expert in the law, at the end, go and do likewise. As you have received mercy, give mercy. As you have been loved, love. As you were treated as a thou who had value by Jesus, treat those around you in the same way. Because when we've received this, how can we not? How can we not? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often are not like this good Samaritan, that, that, that often we are much more like the priest and the Levite, that we see things through our lenses, that we see other people in terms of what they can do for us or how they relate to us. And we don't see them as unique people who have their own struggles and their own issues. And, and we're so wrapped up in our own things, God, that it's so hard to see beyond ourselves. And we get overwhelmed when we think about the need that other people may be having. And, and it's much easier just to, to see them as an it, as someone who we can easily just pass by Lord, forgive us for the ways that we do this to people who are beloved sons and daughters of your, people who you created in your image, God, people who you died for, Jesus. Forgive us for the ways that we fall short. 
We thank you that you are a God who came near to us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our failure to love people, that you didn't just leave us on the road, but that you came and you forgave us and you bandaged us up and you brought us to yourself. You are the good Samaritan who's done this for us. And Lord, as we receive that mercy again today, as we, pro- we hear that good news that, that no matter how we failed to do this well in our lives, Lord, that you forgive us, that you cleanse us, that you see us as righteous in Jesus. Lord, let that transform our hearts, that we would see the around, those around us, Lord, with eyes of mercy, that we'd see them as, as thou's, not as eyes, that you would work out that immaturity in us, God, that we'd be able to relate to one another the way that you want us to, the way that you call us to in your word. We can't do this ourselves, Lord, but your spirit can. And so transform us, God, more and more into your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.